So Tech Resources has canceled the vote, interestingly. And I guess Glencore is going to consider this a win. I was doing a search. I didn't see a ton of commentary. Maybe they're staying strategically silent. Hello and welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli. Where I continue to wonder, I mean, I feel like every reason in the book is being given as to why tech should stay in Canada, other than what I would argue is the main reason. And credit to Robert Friedland, who I do believe has said the main reason, which is it's a critical metal, copper, and all these other metals, for that matter, in this world. We don't want to get rid of the metal. It's strategic. And further, what are we going to do with $20 billion? I mean, frankly, like to be perfectly blunt, can't the Canadian government just print out $23 billion at the drop of a hat? What are we going to do with $23 billion? So maybe we'll have a little bit more paper in the bank, a few more numbers in our bank account. But what is that compared to copper? You know, what is that compared to real zinc? That is wealth, especially as geopolitical tensions remain quite high. Is this the time to go into paper assets? You know, my family, my last name is Pocabelli, as you just heard. They were in Italy in World War II. And as Luke Roman has said, the first casualty in times of war is the truth, and the second casualty is the bond market. And my family in the 40s in Italy, luckily they had real estate because all of their other wealth disappeared. You know, up until the euro, it was a thousand lira, right? And so all that money that was in bonds, like it's a very real thing. It all vaporized with the war. So as we potentially head into, at the minimum, highly tense geopolitical situation, are you going to want to be in paper? And I don't feel like anybody is making that argument, except for perhaps Robert Friedland, who's saying, we don't want to give up this metal. It is strategic. But I'm seeing, you know, it's for the environment. It's for jobs. It's for, you know, powering the green economy. And sure, these are all true and valid, but it's still feels like we're dancing around the issue here. We don't want to trade our real wealth for paper currency. What is that worth to us right now? What are you going to do with it? What are we going to buy with it? I mean, all we're going to do is have to buy copper with it. I assume at some point down the road. So, you know, I see all these stories and we're going to get into them on this episode, but I just feel like we're dancing around the main issue here. As I titled that podcast, Should tech trade copper for cash? That is the question. From over here, so feel free to disagree. Leave a comment. I am just sharing my opinion here, but I just, they can make it 30 billion. I'm not sure it matters. I guess maybe at 60 or 80 billion, you start to care, but that would probably be seen as an insane valuation. So again, what's $20 billion today? So we're going to have a few stories on that, bring you all up to speed. But basically, the long and the short of it, from what I gather here, is really we're sort of in a nebulous zone. So tech has canceled the vote because they saw that they were going to lose. And I guess they thought from a political perspective, it was better to cancel the vote rather than to be defeated. And again, to refresh our memories, Glencore was trying to frame this vote as basically a kind of referendum on whether tech should be go to Glencore or not. Of course, tech has always framed this as this is simply a way of improving the rating, so to speak, of the copper and zinc in our portfolio by separating it from the coal. In other words, we're going to improve the ESG rating and that this will ultimately benefit the valuation on the copper and zinc. So that was not supported enough. And again, the Canadian Pension Plan had to switch sides halfway through as they were kind of lining up votes there, which never really materialized this vote. Glencore has been surprisingly quiet. The Prime Minister has come out, and we'll read his comments in an interview with Bloomberg. And even the opposition in Canada has come out. Pierre... Polivier, the conservative, has also said they don't want Glencore to take over tech. They want to block it. 
And even the British Columbia Premier, David Ebby, opposes it. And of course, we heard last week from Deputy Prime Minister Christia Freeland, who said Canada needs companies like tech in the country for the energy transition. So to be fair, we could say that obliquely refers to the fact that these are critical metals that we need. But at the end of the day, if we're going to trade our copper for a bunch of currency, all we're going to have to do is buy that copper later. And during a time of heightened geopolitical tension, this is not 2015. There's all sorts of red flags everywhere, unfortunately, uh, geopolitically. And from an economic point of view, we're seeing other red flags. We're seeing, you know, another bank collapse, right? And so this is all being managed. And then we have the debt ceiling. Of course, the debt ceiling should be figured out. But it does seem like we are in a space here, particularly at a potential time of war, as I was discussing, you know, my family in World War II, it was the real estate that allowed them to keep whatever they had left. It was the real estate, the real assets. So do we really want to be holding on to a bunch of paper that people have been printing willy-nilly like mad in the last few years? And finally, I mean, to make the inverted point here, why is Glencore so desperately trying to get tech, right? Why does it want it so badly? Clearly, there's a valuation issue here, and clearly $22 billion is seen as a steal. Otherwise, why are they so desperate to take it over? And we look at these other stories that we read in previous weeks, the sharks are circling, where if Glencore doesn't succeed, there's all these other interested parties. So clearly, the valuation is not where it should be. And as I was mentioning in a previous episode, these CEOs are among the most knowledgeable people in the world as to what the real situation with mining is and, say, copper stocks and everything in the world. Remember the story of the BHP executive that was criticizing the LME, the London Metals Exchange, for how nickel was being you know, tabulated and that they had concerns about that? These people know what's going on with the metals, one would think. So, if that's the case, and they're all desperate to buy out tech, well, I'm kind of back to this idea that there is a valuation issue here. So now it feels like I, I don't know what the next step is, right? Where to from here? So I guess we'll continue to follow it here, and we're going to give you some more details in the news section and also a very interesting take on the Chile nationalization. I would put that in quotes. Having watched the speech with uh, Google Auto Translate on, it wasn't quite this, you know, nationalization would be, there are elements of nationalization, but it is what I was calling a fairly light version. Basically, they want to have control over the assets. The final say is how I would put it, and ensure that Chile benefits. I mean, that was the long and the short of the speech. This was not a seizing of assets. So we have more details on that. Experts are now coming out. So it looks like we were interpreting that correctly. Coming up, we have Steve Dunkirk, our feature interview, and he discusses mining and the environment and what miners can do better. In a sense, we've had many shows on ESG in the last few years, but very few shows directly tackling the environment. So Steve is with Safescape. He also has two other companies, Ortana and 3ME Technology. He's a director at all these companies, and they all produce you know, various kinds of environmentally friendly mining products, whether it's electric vehicle mining trucks or data analysis and more. And the real takeaway on that conversation was a very simple point, that ultimately the biggest way to produce a more environmentally friendly mine is to focus on efficiency. In other words, to use less energy. So sometimes the simplest truths are the most profound. And I thought that was actually quite an important observation and insight from Steve. So a wonderful interview coming up on this episode. Then finally, we have a global mining symposium coming up this May 25th. So just go to events.northernminer.com to sign up. And with that, if you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner and on Instagram at The Northern Miner and on Facebook, LinkedIn, 
and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts, and wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. And with that, let's turn to the news. And turning to the website, Glencore says takeover bid for tech stands after spinoff fails. And this is by Cecilia Jamazmi on the Northern Miner. Glencore is far from giving up its plan to take over tech resources. As it confirmed on Thursday, its bid for Canada's largest diversified miner still stands. The mining giant and commodities trader, which does not typically take no for an answer, implied that tech's decision to withdraw its proposal to split up into two companies backed its own plans. Vancouver-based miners scrapped on Wednesday its plan to split into two, just ahead of a key shareholder vote, as Glencore circled with a $23 billion offer made in March and the promise of a sweeter one. Tech, which could not convince the majority of its investors to back the plan to separate its copper and coal businesses, I believe they needed to get two-thirds. So that is kind of a tougher vote to manage than, say, 50%. They said its board will work on providing a, quote, simpler and more direct separation plan. And that is something that we mentioned earlier on this show, that maybe the argument was getting a little too convoluted. So that probably is a good idea. The move is considered a key win for Glencore, which had been campaigning to persuade tech shareholders to vote against the split and instead accept its unsolicited bid. Glencore has framed the failed vote as a mandate to begin talks on its offer, noting on Thursday that its own proposals provided tech shareholders with a, quote, clean separation, end quote, for its coal business while also creating significant additional value for its shareholders. That was the problem with the argument, perhaps, that tech was making was Glencore could probably say, yeah, we'll split it too. And so why not take our money where you're getting a premium over the share price? Right? We can do the same thing. Will provide tech shareholders with a, quote, clean separation, end quote, for its coal business. The Swiss firm added that it was willing to engage with tech's board to improve its proposal structure, but would still make an offer directly to shareholders if there was no response. And we have a quote from Eric Regulay from the Globe and Mail, quote, Now that tech's grand plan to reinvent itself has crashed and burned, Glencore will certainly make a third attempt, this time at a higher price, that tech's Class B shareholders who control most of the equity but few of the votes, may find irresistible. Yeah, but if they don't have the votes and they find it irresistible, it sounds like it's all fine and good that they find it irresistible, but if they don't have the votes, they don't have the votes. Again, like, from what I understand of this entire story, Norm Keevil has the deciding votes, and the only aspect of that that he has relinquished was he said if the board has decided that they will want to go ahead with a you know Glencore takeover then he would relent but I suspect that he did that knowing that the board would never do that so I don't know if it matters if the class b shareholders would find it irresistible what I would say to Eric regularly but this is just a quote, so there may be much more to what he was saying. Glencore, which plans to acquire tech and then split itself into two companies, metal and coal. So, I mean, they basically are saying, we'll do the same thing. We'll just give you a premium. Uh, appealed to the Canadian public by saying that its own metals unit would have, quote, significant critical minerals and recycling operations in Canada managed from Canada. Well, significant can mean anything. The country's Deputy Prime Minister, Christia Freeland, said on Monday that tech should remain headquartered in Canada, so that was a week ago Monday, providing the clearest indication to date that the government was closely watching the takeover battle. And so there's a Bloomberg story that came out as well. Glencore-led revolt kills tech plan, keeping takeover goal alive. And many of uh, similar things were said, but I do want to focus on this quote by Jonathan Price, who's the CEO of tech. And he said, quote, we will not engage on something that is a distraction from our mandate to create the greatest value with the greatest certainty for our shareholders. So, yeah, I guess they have to make it all about profit. But again, I don't know why the argument isn't being made. And again, I'm just, what do I know from over here? I'm just some podcast host, okay? But I don't know why the argument isn't being made that, like, I mean, it seems to me Another reason why this is not something that tech wants to do 
is because if Goldman Sachs is right, where, you know, copper could pull an oil when oil was at $10 a barrel, that's basically $4 a pound copper, where if copper all of a sudden goes to $40 a pound, are you worrying about getting the greatest value right now in 2023? And as Cecilia pointed out, Cecilia Jamazmi, when we interviewed her, you know, this isn't like some far away in the future sort of thing, this copper shortage. This is coming up this decade, arguably in the next three to six years, right? We're already at 2023. So that also has to be factored in. And you could say, well, then you could go out and find an asset. I mean, because this is the thing. Can you go out then? I mean, if you're going to go purely on market valuation today, then the question is, okay, so you get a premium, then can you go out on the market and buy another copper asset and get more than you just sold? Can you do that? And I don't think you can. I don't think you can get what they're being paid. I don't think you can go on the market and find another one. It's not like there's an endless supply of these copper companies. So I just wanted to read that quote from the Bloomberg article. Now, Justin Trudeau, in an interview with Bloomberg also weighed in. Tech Resources is a, quote, great company that's important to Canada's economy, and any takeover bid for the miner will have to get through a, quote, rigorous process to win government approval, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said. The company's tense fight with Glencore is, quote, certainly something that we're looking very, very carefully at because it is important to have these great companies in Canada, end quote, Trudeau said Friday in an interview on Bloomberg Television. He promised that if the government is asked to approve a deal, it will be consistent in applying Canada's takeover rules, quote, so investors can know what they're getting into, end quote. And we have another quote from Trudeau, quote, what's more important to me is the company behaving the right way towards the environment, whether it's a local company or a foreign multinational. We have high and stringent expectations, not just on environmental issues, but on partnerships with Indigenous peoples. And again, if those are the hurdles that Glencore has to achieve, I don't see what's in their way. If it's simply, if I'm Glencore, I'm saying, well, of course, we're, we're I, it goes without saying in today's mining industry that we're going to be environmental and that we're going to keep our partnerships with Indigenous peoples. Now, it's becoming a broader political issue. British Columbia Premier David Eby has weighed in against the takeover. The federal government stopped short of that. In a letter to Vancouver's Board of Trade this week, Deputy Prime Minister Christia Freeland said Canada needs companies like tech as part of its strategy to move forward, to move towards cleaner forms of energy. And again, we read this last week, quote, the mining of critical minerals is key to the future and only companies that make serious commitments to ESG and strong partnerships with Indigenous peoples will succeed. Rest assured that the federal government is following this very closely. Again, if that's the standard that Glencore has to meet, then this thing's going through, as far as I can see. And finally here, any acquisition of tech would have to undergo a government review with the final decision likely to fall on the desk of Industry Minister François-Philippe Champagne, who signed Freeland's letter with Natural Resource Minister Jonathan Wilkinson. Large-scale mining takeovers have been a sensitive topic in Canada ever since a wave of deals more than 15 years ago took out some of the sector's biggest players, including nickel miner Inco and aluminum producer Alcan. I'll never forget that. My dad was railing against that, selling off the wealth. We're making the same argument here, you know, 15 years later. So shout out to my dad, Gustavo. And finally, Canadian Conservatives want Glencore takeover of tech blocked. So the Conservatives, and this is Bloomberg News, Pierre Polivier is saying Canada needs a government that is committed to creating and supporting Canadian jobs. Glencore's attempted hostile takeover will ship thousands of jobs out of country and threaten thousands more Canadians who work for tech. Again, as I was saying in the intro, I kind of think the jobs and the ESG business is really dancing around the issue. Now, I do wonder if the reason they're not making, you know, the copper itself the issue is because they're worried that you know, this wave of resource nationalism could really, you know, could fly right back at them from other countries. So maybe this is why they're kind of being, trying to make it about jobs and ESG rather than about kind of wealth itself, interestingly. Just speculating here. 
And continuing on, so we have another great story here by Cecilia Jamasmi on Mining.com, Chile's lithium plan not really nationalization, say experts. The announcement by Chile's state miner, Enami, which is looking for private partners to develop lithium assets in the Atacama Desert, provides clues about the nature of the country's lithium quote-unquote nationalization. But what it means for investors in the South American nation has analysts and industry actors divided. Strategic lawyer and business advisor at Canada's McCarthy Tetro, Sean Doyle, believes that while Boric's announcement has been branded a nationalization, it is rather a positive turn of events for private capital keen to invest in the battery metal. We were kind of making this point last week. Quote, in his speech, Boric indeed invoked expropriations that occurred in Chile's copper industry in 1971. However, it must be remembered that as a result of policy paralysis, Chile has been effectively closed down to new private investment in lithium for decades, he wrote in a note to clients. And this is exactly the point I was making last week. This could, in fact, speed up a lot of permitting and really actually get this everything going with the government having a bigger stake in it. I mean, it's kind of reminiscent to me of some of these deals that Barrick has been making with, say, Papua New Guinea, and I think maybe in Africa as well, really giving these countries a larger stake. And that was from the, you know, a deal made from a corporate perspective. And it seems to me like this is kind of a similar territory where it's not a full-on nationalization, just the country wants a bigger stake. And we have a quote from Albemarle Chief Executive Kent Masters, who also sees the new policy as an opportunity to tap into new lithium reserves beyond the mines it already has. Quote, I don't fear about Albemarle's future in Chile, he told CNBC. Quote, Bork's government wants to bring more Chilean lithium supply to the market by partnering with companies interested in the business, which know how to operate those mines. Nicholas Saldius, senior analyst at the Economic Intelligence Unit for Latin America and the Caribbean, said that phrasing Chile's move as nationalization is, quote, too strong. Quote, it's a quasi-nationalization in that the playing field will now be leveled in favor of the state. So I'm feeling pretty good about the analysis that we made here last week. And finally, Bernardo Fontaine, Chilean economist and academic, believes that private capital will hesitate before letting the state own the majority of their business particularly if the same state competes with their other operations for buyers. Quote, it's an optimistic and enthusiastic bet to ask investors to choose partnering with a state company via minority stake, risking capital and technology as opposed to simply doing it alone, Fontaine told Mining.com. So very interesting story. You can read the whole thing on Mining.com. And finally, just a couple of headlines here. Indonesia to allow Freeport Amman Mineral to ship copper concentrate until 2024. And this is Reuters via mining.com. So Indonesia was set to ban the exporting of copper concentrate in June, but they have delayed that until next year to allow for their smelters to be completed, the mining minister said on Friday. And so they're again looking to process metals in country. So that is part of what that is about. You see the copper concentrate, they don't want to be shipped out. They want to be turned into stuff and then sold. So if you're a car company, build your car in Indonesia is the message. And another headline, Stellantis, Australia's Alliance Nickel Inc. deal for battery element supply. This is also Reuters. Carmaker Stellantis has signed an agreement with Alliance Nickel for the supply of battery-grade nickel and cobalt sulfate from the Nye West project in Western Australia, the two groups said on Friday. The deal, the latest struck in Australia by the world's third largest automaker by revenues, confirms the country as a core supplier for Stellantis of materials which are key to producing batteries needed for electrification of vehicles. And final headline, Zimbabwe is continuing with its gold-backed digital currency. Zimbabwe will issue a gold-backed digital token from next month. This is Bloomberg News. And just a couple of paragraphs here. Zimbabwe's central bank plans to sell a gold-backed digital currency to the public from May 8th in another attempt to stabilize its tumbling currency and offer an alternative to the U.S. dollar. Now, actually, there's another story here. Turkey central bank draws down gold reserves to meet demand. So as Jeffrey Christian poignantly said, if you have a gold-backed currency that is not convertible to gold, it's like a car without wheels. Because you hear a lot of this idea of a gold-backed currency, but gold-backed means nothing, according to an expert in the business, Jeffrey Christian, 
who says, again, this is like a car without wheels if it's not actually convertible. So it needs to be convertible. And so that is happening. And in Turkey, we're seeing similar moves. Turkey Central Bank draws down gold reserves to meet demand. And this is right before an election. So that is interesting. So those are your news stories. Now, let's take a look at metal prices. Prices. Let's just take a quick look at the 10-year U.S. Treasury bond, and it is yielding 3.532%. That is 0.09% higher than last week. All the numbers we have in the last two months are between 3.43 and 3.63. So continuing to trade in this range on a weekly level here, at least the numbers we are tracking here and turning to precious metals, gold is trading at $1,982.06 per ounce. That is $3 higher than last week. Silver is back above $25 at $25.01 per ounce. That is $0.47 cents higher than last week. Platinum is trading lower at $1,050.29 per ounce. That is $15 lower than last week, and palladium is trading at $1,452.08 per ounce. That is $40 lower than last week. And turning to our industrial metals, copper is trading at $3.91 per pound. That is $0.07 cents higher than last week. Iron ore is trading lower at $103.61 per ton. That is $6 lower, so continuing to fall pretty steadily here. I mean, it was at 133 two months ago, and now it's at 103. Aluminum is down a penny at $1.07 per pound. Lead is down a penny at 99 cents per pound. Nickel is also lower at $10.98 per pound. That is 9 cents lower than last week. Tin is also lower at $11.83 per pound. That is 23 cents lower than last week. And cobalt is unchanged at $15.84 per pound. Lithium continues to fall, just 10 cents lower, but it continues to fall at $24.93 per kilogram. And uranium is higher at $52.10 per pound. That is $1.10 higher than last week. And zinc is down a penny at $1.20 per pound. Zooming out, silver and uranium are really standing out as metals that are showing relative strength here on a very short time frame, but nevertheless, everything else is basically edging lower. So bit of a risk-off feel to the market overall. Maybe it's this concern around First Republic and just general uncertainties in the market in a sense maybe that this rally is starting to run out of steam here in the stock market. And those are your metal prices. Coming up, I'm happy to welcome Steve Dunkirk to the Northern Miner podcast. He is director at Safescape, Bortana, and 3ME Technology, and he gives a very interesting assessment of where the mining industry is in regard to the environment, what it is not doing enough of, what it could do more of, and potential solutions moving forward. An excellent overview for all miners, both small and large, to remember to keep your eye on the ball which in Steve's estimation is efficiency. You want to focus on efficiency. I hope you enjoy the interview and I will see you on the other side. Joining me today, I'm very pleased to welcome Steve Durkin, director of Safescape, Bortana, and 3ME Technology to the Northern Miner podcast. Steve, welcome to the program. Thanks, Adrian. It's good to be here. Well, it's wonderful to have you. You know, we've had many guests on here, and we've had a lot of discussion over the years about ESG and, you know, issues surrounding that larger topic. But I actually haven't had too many people who are directly involved with, say, the environment and the actual pollution and waste that are created by mine sites with a certain expertise. So I'm very happy to bring you on. 
So to start us off, how is the mining industry doing in terms of emissions and the environment in the big picture from your perspective? I think that the, the mining industry is like any other industry. Mining companies need to react to local and global social trends in order to remain competitive with their peers and attract investment and human capital. Unlike many industries, though, mining companies feel very little pressure from their customers because they don't deal directly with consumers. People who work in the mining industry, they care just as much about the environment, sustainability, preserving significant cultural sites, etc., as anyone else does. We're all people. The reality of the work involved in excavating, processing, refining metals and most minerals is that it has a very high energy demand. So the trouble is that most mining companies are listed companies and listed companies are incentivized to hold large reserves and they're incentivized to meet quarterly guidance. And these things don't necessarily align with efficient mining practices. Quite often you'll, you'll see on many mines, I'm sure uh, many of your listeners would be familiar with examples where we're not going to quite meet our tons or our, or our ounces this quarter. So we go and extract a, a high value area, thereby eliminating the possibility to go back and get the next section later on. So we've sterilized an area of resource. And you know, mining companies are viewed positively by shareholders when they limit capital expenditure. But these same shareholders seem immune to continuously increasing operating costs. And, you know, like that is not an incentive to investing in systems and equipment and processes that will result in more efficient extraction of the metal. We're much happier just to throw stuff at it as we need to throughout the process of actually doing our work. And, and yes, it becomes less efficient, but at least we didn't deploy as much capital. So, and when it comes to holding these large reserves, it's it's most easily done by having large, low-grade deposits. And the easiest way to reduce emissions is to excavate less rock and process less rock. So, ideally, higher-grade materials. But it's much easier to have a reserve when you drill 100 holes into an ore body that's just consistently 0.5 grams per ton, 0.5% copper. So, how do we improve efficiency? mine less waste material for a start. Okay, interesting. So if I understand you right, you're basically saying the mining companies, at least that you're seeing and dealing with, that in a sense that the environmental side is secondary and that it really is still about the quarterly earnings. And the second part is that the ultimate issue that's creating all these emissions is actually the amount of rock that you process. The issue is we are in, in these really large scale operations that are treating very low grade material, we are excavating millions and millions of tons of rock and putting them on a dump. And then other millions and millions of tons of rock, you know, grinding them to a very fine paste, which uses a lot of energy. And yeah, it's profitable. We can achieve profit doing that. But it's basically swapping energy dollars for copper dollars. And so as long as the copper dollars keep going up, then we can just keep using more energy and, and process lower and lower grade material. So that's not improving efficiency. So what you're saying then is something that I think a lot of people would probably sounds like common sense and would agree that you could see it happening, which is the higher that copper goes, to use your example, the more that a miner might feel like they don't need to be efficient because the more money that's coming in for that copper. And so this it, whole yeah. situation does not foster a good environment for being more efficient. Is that correct? It's not necessarily about a feel. It's about, you know, we are aiming to increase the value of our shares. So if if you're mining an ore body, you know, for 10 years that's you're processing 0.6 grams per ton copper and selling it at you know x dollars per ton of copper but then it goes up by you know 40 percent in the price well during that 10 years you've stockpiled a huge amount of material that's 0.5 grams a ton and so okay i couldn't process that before and make money but i can today so in fact when metal prices go up production goes down because the processing plants that uh, are in existence will process lower grade material for that period where that is profitable to do so. So the actual output of those plants doesn't go up, it goes down in terms of metal tons, which is 
the opposite of what supply and demand tells us it should do. But but it makes sense, right? Because we've got all of this other material sitting there, which was considered low-grade mineralized rock and is now a reserve. So I've just increased my share price because I just said, hey, look at that massive pile of rock. It's now a reserve. Fascinating. So you're saying this is a pretty common scenario that we'll oh, yeah. have a lot of this kind of low-grade and, you know, I think the definition of ore is is metal that can be mined profitably. I remember that was the first thing that I learned at the Northern Miner here. And so I hesitate to call it ore, but there's basically a whole bunch of stockpile of rock with metal in it. And you're basically saying it's not an uncommon scenario where that will then be processed first and actual production of the mine will slow down. And even the metal output might go down. Is that right? Yeah. Because all of a sudden you're processing lower grade yep. material. Every mine's different and every operation's different in terms of the way they react to that situation. But the reality is they will accept a lower head grade going into the process plant. So it might, but definitely what it means is all of a sudden I've got a massive mountain of reserves that weren't in my reserve category before. So my share price goes up. And then that's the first part. I'm happy with that. And then the second part is I can process lower grade material. So I might start mixing it in with what's coming out of the mine and allow myself to operate a little bit slower, taking down that cutback or whatever, because at the moment I can I can access this. But always they're looking at making a profit. So they're always going to put through their highest grade material first where they can. That's the reality of it. The higher the price goes, the, the lower the grade material we can process. So what can the mining industry, I mean, you deal with this, you're part of three different companies here. What can the mining industry, what should they be doing more of in your opinion in order to become you know more environmentally friendly i'd start with what they should be doing less of and that's they should be doing less mining of waste material and they should be processing less waste material going through their processing plant which that might sound like a silly statement but the reality is some operations will intentionally mine in a way that dilutes their ore in order to meet guidance in order to fill up the mill and, and have that have that material being processed. So I'd say, what can they do more of? Um, they can understand how their operations work really well. And so, you know, there's very little granular knowledge of what is actually happening on a day-to-day -day basis within a process plant, for example, which is where a lot of the energy and other inputs, chemicals, et cetera, go into the system. And these new tools like what the European Union are putting out with this carbon border adjustment mechanism things like this are going to have a big impact because very few mine sites have the ability to accurately measure and report on their carbon emissions so this looming cbam deadline late this year i think october and then you know full implementation 2027 these mines need to actually be able to account for every input and audit it on an ongoing basis so they know what they're consuming and the beauty of being able to do that using you know, efficiency and governance tools such as metallurgical intelligence, which is a, a you know, system of online metallurgical accounting, means that if they want to tweak the system, if they want to try something, say go from cheaper mill balls, which are just very just carbon steel mill balls, to high manganese mill balls, which cost a lot more, but theoretically last a lot longer, and therefore there should be a milling and energy saving. If you do that trial, this metallurgical intelligence package is going to tell you instantly the impact that it's having to your entire process flow because you change one thing you change 17 other things in the same moment and so it's very difficult at the moment to change one thing tweak a system and find out did that work are my emissions reduced whereas if you've got that package in place you know today that this change that i just made has improved our operation so that to me is the is the thing we should be doing more Right. And so is this kind of like what we might loosely call like digitalization, where how does one yes. person know that, you know, say that the manganese will work better? How do you know? In a sense, is I guess there's data out there and, uh, you know, there's histories of this material being used. Oh, for sure. So things like that, um, there'll be there'll be white papers delivered by the company supplying those that particular product. And they make claims they'll have done test work and it, it'll prove something. But of course, my mind's different to everybody else's mind. Every mind's different. Right? So if I say, nope, it's not going to work for me, then it's not going to work for me. And that attitude, unfortunately, happens you know, a lot and not just in processing, in mining as well. And if a person says it's not going to work, no matter what, it's not going to work. Like you are not going to make it work. 
So having a system which actually tells you definitively on your site whether something works or not is valuable because it takes away that cultural piece where people can just slam their fist on the table and say, I know best. We're going to keep doing it the way we've always done it because that's what works. Right. So the data kind of helps solve yeah, the, the, what, the, you know, helps. The, the attitude adjustment that might be required. Uh, and yeah, fair enough. And it's also very interesting what you're saying. I was almost surprised to hear, but it made perfect sense as you said it, that processing plants are actually, would you call that the largest source of energy use? I mean, I guess it makes sense, but is that what you were saying? Oh, absolutely. It depends on your operation. Every operation is is different, like a, a very deep, narrow vein underground mine. There's relatively high mining costs, but a large open, open pit mine, very low mining costs. But the processing side definitely has a lot of uh, opportunity for improvement. Just the ball mill or rod mill, just the comminution process on, on the processing plant itself typically uses half the energy that gets used on a mine site. And that's just one, typically one large machine, and that that is using half the energy that is being used on that site. Very interesting. So there are a lot of smaller companies that listen to this podcast, a lot of explorers and mid-tiers, companies of all sizes, really. Um, but for the explorers out there, what can they do to you know improve their environmental footprint? Again, it comes down to efficiency, and I think of a Canadian company called Windfall Geotech who use artificial intelligence package to consider the various geological layers of data that exist in a in a particular area to help to more efficiently target areas for further follow up using using drilling. So you know the, there is potential to use uh, mechanisms within AI to using our own knowledge, actually more confidently know where we're going to go and drill with our limited resources. So I think that could, could help those guys. Interesting. So it's back to efficiency here where it's like, don't drill the hole that you don't need to drill is basically what that yep. technology hopes to deliver. Is that correct? That's what they they, they claim to be very, very successful at um, at pinpointing good places to drill. Right. And maybe they're limited too. And like, I mean, how many things can they do? I mean, from my understanding, you know, they basically hire the drillers. So it almost becomes maybe about the drillers themselves and what they're doing. And I, I assume they have their ways of trying to be as, you know, efficient. So I'm kind of back to this question. So, you know, what would you like to see more of? Let's put it this way. I mean, you're a mining engineer by background. What is it that you think could really help on the environmental side. And is the mining industry doing enough? No, but that's because society doesn't ask much of the mining industry. If you want to keep using metals and using more metals, then you can expect that miners are going to mine. And that's just how it's going to be. So then the, the rest of society, all we're all our interest is in, in the mining industry is to buy shares in the companies that we think are going to make us money. Well, what we could do as a society is reward those mining companies that actually do show the emissions per unit of production that they've got and that theirs is better, is, is lower than somebody else's. That's how that happens. And I can tell you that is the best way to make a mining company want to make change. Now, yes, they will be affected by activist investors coming in and waving a flag saying, show us how you're measuring your carbon. Well, yeah, that's making an impact. It makes them go and you know electrify large haul trucks and solar farms and such like, which are things that they wouldn't have done before. And so that is how we make the change is we compare them and evaluate them based on how efficient they are, then they will become efficient. Right. So really valuing efficiency, which is actually one of the big words that I feel like I've heard here a lot throughout our conversation here is actually one of the ways to be more environmental is to be more efficient. I mean, to state oh, the obvious, but it's worth stating. It is like we can't you know, be a, a protester and stand around, you know, saying, hey, you know, these mines, we don't need mines anymore. And then tweeting it on our iPhones because you can't have your iPhone, you can't have your internet, you can't have your cars and, and your trains without it. So we have to keep mining if we want to keep giving more people access to the stuff that you and I have in, in, in our societies. So that's going to happen. The question is, how much energy are we going to consume in doing so? Okay, so now... It comes down to energy. So in terms of solutions, then, what kind of solutions do you think the mining industry should take then 
in order to lower emissions and improve its environmental situation? What kind of solutions do you have? Or do you think that the mining industry should enact? So everything should be considered individually, not just about cost. You know, how much of an impact does this have theoretically when we're imagining a change or assessing two different options? Which one is going to give us the best environmental uh, efficiency outcome here? not just measuring on actual capital cost of the item that you're purchasing. So that is not how we think in mining companies at the moment. We we don't evaluate that at all. If we did, it would make a difference. So I think that this opportunity of electrification in mining is is really large. Most of the benefit is going to come from underground mining because you know typically the energy that goes into ventilating an underground mine is 10 times more than the, the energy that, that gets consumed in diesel engines within the mine. Mm. So the, the, there's a massive multiplier effect there. So there's a European OEM that's got a new SUV coming out, that, which is electric, and they evaluated the lifetime carbon e- emissions reduction by their EV compared to their diesel version of this SUV, and they identified a significant saving in emissions. So I did the same thing for the Bortana EV compared to a diesel-powered Land Cruiser. And over the same time period, the impact was 330 times higher than the SUV. So don't get me wrong, EVs are great. They're great to drive. They're fun. They're they're nice and clean. They don't spew out um, diesel when you're picking up your kids in the school pickup and drop-up area. That's all great. But actually, if you want to make a difference, that's where you do it. You don't put 330 European SUVs on the road. You put one electric underground light vehicle into an underground mine and that's the difference. So that is efficient use because that, that the battery is the same size as one of the SUVs. It's a no-brainer. That is where we should be spending our, our time and energy is around that electrification piece because that's where the leverage is. It seems to me that at a certain point, you know, especially with higher oil prices and just higher energy prices, that being efficient is going to be economic. Because what you were saying earlier was suggesting that maybe it's not always economic because, I don't know, maybe there's a bigger spend at the start in order to achieve that efficiency. I'm not sure why, just for instance. I mean, do you ultimately see being environmental also being profitable in the end? Oh, absolutely. It absolutely is because it's about energy in, energy out of the system. And so your energy in the form of a known quantity of metal that can be used for a different for different applications. So it will come down to that ultimately, but we do have other sort of structural impediments, like I'm not sure what the situation in, in other countries, but I know in Australia, we have a, a federal diesel fuel rebate system that goes to primary producers. So farms, fishing, uh, mining. So we pay the same as, as everybody else pays for fuel, but then we get a quarter of it back from the federal government. So we're paid to burn diesel, which is not a very good incentive for efficiency. Um, that could certainly be fixed because it would force us to care more about the type of engine we're using or or whether we need a truck that weighs, you know, 200 tonne empty or if we could get away with something that has a better tear to payload ratio. So a lot of sort of background stuff there that's not helpful that could be changed. And mining companies, if it, if it comes down to energy, regardless of where it comes from or how discounted it is by the supplier, it's energy cost versus profit of the operation, then yes, it will come down to how efficient we can be. That's how much more money we make than everybody else. So as we wrap up here then, uh, you're with Safescape, you're with Portana, you're with 3ME Technology. What are you guys doing? What's what are what's your offering that you're uh, presenting to the industry? Uh, how are you guys trying to help? Yeah, sure. So the, the Bortana is a 5.7-ton uh, full drive light electric vehicle. So you can use it in other areas, but primarily it was designed for underground mining. It's got a very robust and uh, corrosion-resistant frame. So we expect it to last a very long time. It's um, very safe and easy to operate. So we're in, in the process of, of building up production for that vehicle. With Safe Escape, we make escapeway ladders. There's plenty of mines, 150-odd mines around the world that use our latitude escapeway ladders. And to give you a, an idea, I measured, I could did a little study to try to understand what the, the scope one, two, emissions on the escapeways are, and then also considering three, which is in our case where the mine excavates the rise to put the ladder in. 
So it's anything from 10% to maybe 3% of what the emissions would be if you used a steel ladder. So our, our ladders are plastic. And oftentimes, you know, sustainability people will, will critique the use of plastic. But hang on a sec, actually, the emissions involved in this product doing that job are 20 times less than using a steel ladder in that role. Nobody buys it because of that reason. They buy it because it's cheaper, but it is actually adds value from a sustainability perspective. And we also have a product called Edge Protector that um, reduces the space taken up by a, a windrow that's on the edge of a full road ramp, which has the effect of reducing the stripping ratio, the amount of waste that you have to move to access uh, each tonne of ore. And that has an impact typically on a large open pit mine of reducing diesel usage in load and haul by 2 to 3%. So these are the sorts of things we do. And 3ME technology is Got to focus on um, integrating and supplying batteries to electrify heavy industries of mining, uh, military and marine. Impressive. Okay, so just as kind of final thoughts here, what is your message then for the mining industry on what it should be doing? Uh, maybe we already touched on that, but what is your, if we had to distill it down here, what is your message for the mining industry? Well, well let's think about the energy that we're using, regardless of where it's coming from, and focus our efforts not in the areas that might give us the best picture on our quarterly report or annual report, but what will actually have the biggest impact to our energy consumption in our operations. Let's measure ourselves against others by the energy we consume per unit of output. And that'll help us to really get better. I would suggest that implementing tools like the um, metallurgical intelligence I suggested earlier is, is going to be the easiest way to do that. And once we start thinking like that, then we're thinking like that all the time. And so, you know, these people in the industry are very smart people. It's just a question of just changing the priority from meeting guidance to improving the way that we work. Okay, excellent. Well, Steve Durkin, Director at Safescape, Bortana, and 3ME Technology, thank you for joining us on the Northern Miner Podcast and sharing your thoughts on mining and the environment. Thanks very much. It was fun. Thank you once again to Steve Dunkirk for providing us with some very practical, strategic advice on how we can reduce our environmental footprints in the mining industry. The practical advice is always appreciated over here, so I hope you enjoyed that. And coming up on May 25th, we have the Global Mining Symposium. This time it's out of Toronto. If you want to register your interest, simply go to events.northernminer.com. You can also become a sponsor, and that is coming up down the pike. So again, just go to events.northernminer.com. If you want to help out the podcast, please leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory. Share it with your friends. And until next week, take care.